If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Chris, welcome to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast, mate. Always good to chat, mate. <laughs> Always good to chat. We're on a mission to be the most trusted property podcast in Australia. And depending on when this goes to air, I think we are on that journey. We're on that pathway. We're about to cross 10,000 unique listeners to the series thus far, which is incredible. Today, we are answering questions. And when it comes to questions, we get those lovely disclaimers. So we've got the disclaimer, which is that any of the information that we do deliver today is strictly general in nature. We don't know your circumstances, so you should refer to a financial advisor, a mortgage broker, or an accountant, or even maybe a lawyer, depending on what you're asking, uh, to get expert one-on-one advice. Make sure they're licensed. You'll find an extended disclaimer in the show notes where we always publish a, a bit of a disclaimer there. But Chris, we've got so many questions as they touch on serviceability, small businesses, people that are looking to buy in coastal or regional areas and want to think about maybe I can Airbnb this thing. So many different things. If you do want your questions answered by any one of us on the team, the simplest way to do that is to head to the link in your show notes. In there, you will find a thing that says, ask a question, follow the prompts and select the Australian Property Podcast. We're hoping to do these every fortnight and Chris and Pete every Sunday do air a particular episode where they do take questions as well and they talk about the three most topical things that week. We love hearing from you is the bottom line. So Chris, the first question comes through from Stevie who asks, hi folks, enjoying the new podcast and really looking forward to learning more about property with you. We're thinking about selling an old tired looking investment property which is located in an established city suburb. It's been a rental property that sits firmly at the bottom end of the rental market. We're selling because we need to. We want to simplify our situation and buy something for our family. 
When it comes to selling, will it pay to polish what looks like a bit of a turd? What things should we factor into our decision-making when it comes to capital investment for capital returns? So Chris, there are two questions in here, I'm guessing. The first is around they're looking to sell this turd, in their words, and the other one is capital growth. So maybe we take them one at a time. Let's talk about selling. Okay, so obviously in a personal situation, we don't know all the facts and figures, right? But I'm just imagining this, right? In a established suburb, it's at the bottom of the rental market. So it's at the bottom of the rental market, I reckon it's a studio or one bedroom apartment. And I reckon he's, he also said it's quite tired. So I don't reckon it's a really newer build. It's probably like a, maybe a brick build, you know, but it's a one or a, or a studio or it's a, not a great location because it's quite to the bottom of the rental market. So I'm just sort of trying to join the dots. Now, I think that the idea behind this does make a lot of sense, right? And there's an unbelief that you should never buy, sell property, right? That's absolutely nonsense. You know, we're constantly talking to our clients about the benefits maybe selling, you know, whether it's paying down debt or better, buying better assets. And so, um, some, and this sounds like a really good reason to do it. And they're going to go out of an asset and invest in property that may not be a great asset into something that's going to suit their family. An asset's going to grow tax-free, something they can live in long-term. It's going to get capital growth. Hopefully, it's a better asset, et cetera. So I'm fully on board with the decision, usually in this scenario. Should you polish a turd? I reckon it's going to be harder to sell a turd that's uh, not polished, right? And Ultimately, digital real estate is something people need to think about, right? So properties become stale extremely fast. And so this person who doesn't do the things, doesn't paint it, doesn't tidy it up, doesn't clean up the gardens or fix the holes in the carpet, etc. When people go through, they're obviously going to think, oh, this is too much work. And you know, a lot of people can't afford to do that renovation. It does, you actually need to fund it. The bank won't fund it, right? You might need to have extra cash or you might need to go and a lot of people haven't got access to that or don't want to do the work, et cetera. So ultimately, it's like selling a car. Like if you can do small things that will make that property present better, you're going to increase the likelihood of this selling. The second thing that you can do is through styling, right? You know, trying to sell an empty space, you're not going to get the emotional pull. But, you know, stylists aren't that expensive, you know, that's my personal belief. And if that gives people a really good vibe when they walk into a place, it feels bigger, it feels light, it feels airy, it feels really nice. So they can visualize, not everyone can visualize how a property will be laid out. You're more likely to get people with that emotional attachment. And the problem is when you haven't got a good asset, ultimately you're going to get one buyer, right? And so what you've got to try to do is get that buyer, get that buyer emotionally attached. And this is what an agent would do, right? This is ultimately what I'm trying to think about here. And get them to make an offer, right? So if you don't tidy it up and you don't style us, what you're going to do is put it on the market. Now, people will find out pretty quickly that property's been on the market for three months. Well, what's wrong with it? Why isn't it selling? And that's the danger you get here. And it won't sell. And then what you're going to do is basically create this opportunity cost where you could have bought into your next place for your family, but you're still trying to sell this investment property. Then you go to another agent and then they tell you to tidy it up. And it's all messy, right? For buyers. So my advice with selling is get the property ready for sale, present it in the best, most cost-efficient way you can do it, obviously. Don't always believe everything that the agent says you need to do, you have to do, because they obviously want you to go over to make it the best possible, easiest for them to sell it. But easiest for them to sell is actually also a good indication that that's what the market wants. And so I think that's the mistake. I definitely see people rush the sale process. They try to sell it with a tenant in it. Like that's just not a good idea. So try to get your tenant out. You know, if you ha- if they're on a lease, maybe even give them a bonus. We give them a two or a four week bonus to leave, or if they're still under contract, sometimes they take it. Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So I remember when we bought our house. So I haven't sold one for disclosure. So don't, I'm very uh, novice at this, but uh, it was clear to me that they put a lick of paint on it, uh, like a really rough lick of paint. 
but I was happy to do the work. But I thought if it was me wanting to sell that, I probably would have done the paint. I probably would have also staged it. They didn't stage it at all. Yeah. And I probably would have pulled some of the plants out of the garden, like really low cost things that just make it feel a bit more homely and a bit more like inspired. It was really, it wasn't that. And that was our advantage as a buyer. But from a seller's perspective, they definitely didn't get what they could have. So I just kind of like invert that logic. Just quickly, you mentioned like decorating and that. It's my understanding that you basically pay a company to come in and they'll stage it for you. And it only is for a certain window, right? So you want to make sure that that's ready to go and every, all the ducks are in a row. So that, that's my understanding, right? You don't want it to go stale. Well, absolutely. You're, the stylist company will charge you an extra fee for going over or you have to repay for an extra period, right? So absolutely, they want to reuse that furniture in another property that they're styling. So there'll be a set time frame that they're willing to lease it to you for, basically. And yeah, absolutely, you don't really want it to sit on the market styling. So that's why I get it ready first. And picking the right agent, like you can potentially rush that process. Really want an agent that A, you can trust, which is really hard to find, right? Because it's a personal thing. But B, someone who really knows that market and is really going to give you good advice around and you have to trust that advice. And that's the hard thing. So Picking the right agent is a whole other topic. Okay, so the second part of Stevie's question was just around what would you think about when it goes into like a capital return? So in my words, maybe this is someone that's looking for growth in the value of the property, the price of the property, as opposed to the income component. How do you think about that? So Stevie's already, I think, hitting the nail on the head, right? They're already thinking about, look, I want something for the family, but I also want this to be a great decision for ourselves financially. Because the reality is if you don't think about it like that and you just go, I want to get a property for myself and the family, right? At some point, you will sell that property, right? Might be two years, might be 10 years, might be 20 or 30 years, right? And that's when the capital investment really matters, right? Because if you didn't buy it, if it doesn't perform very well, right? You might get your money back. You might get a little bit of growth, right? Your options for that next property are going to be limited. And so because you've got less money to take into the next place, right? So this is why it's so important, especially if it's your home, you're going to live in there a long time. That compounding of a, this, a slightly better asset than the other one may mean a lot of money in the future. And so absolutely, it's the right focus. So what's going to suit us as a family? But what does the market really want? What's a good asset? What's scarce? And what's likely to go up more over the longer term? And can we potentially make a slight compromise from a fa- family point of view? And maybe it's not a compromise. But sometimes you do. You say, I'll take a slight compromise. Maybe I'm a bit further out than I want to be because it meant I got on a quiet street versus a busy road or maybe it's um, et cetera. So, or maybe we didn't go for that house that was a great location, but it had a real privacy problem or had a noise problem, et cetera. So some things that are, are real deal breakers for a lot of buyers, you've got to sometimes like temper your potential fit for you as a family. And so ultimately the thing that drives its growth longer term is its scarcity and its desirability. So I guess it's trying to figure out what's a quality asset within that marketplace that you want to buy. And But the fundamentals are usually the same. Quiet streets, great aspects, great light, great privacy, great amenity, great part of the suburb, great access to public transport, sport facilities, schools, surrounded by other nice properties. There's usually better streets that people are renovating and not risk of future development around you, etc. So there's a lot to it. But Ultimately, I think Stevie's already on the right path because he's thinking about he or she is thinking about it in the right way. Yeah, I think this is like you mentioned before that the idea of never selling a property is maybe like one of those myths that maybe some people need to bust. But I think maybe that's particularly true when the quality of the asset is so low. 
because it's basically it's an opportunity cost that you're, you're holding on to a turd that is still going to be a turd long into the future. So Stevie's on the right track in thinking, well, maybe now's better time than any. The next question comes from Billy, Chris, and is a very short question, but we think we got the gist of it, which is the serviceability of loans when you've just started your own business. I was in this situation when I approached you and you managed to, I would say, wave a wand, which was probably unique in my circumstances, you and Ben at Blusk. But uh, what do people need to think about if they have a small business, if they've just started it maybe, and they're looking to borrow to buy a home? Can you tell us, like from a mortgage broker's perspective, what should they be thinking about? So, Billy, I actually love the question, right? It was like four or five words or whatever it was, but absolutely, we got the gist, right? And my worry is, I think it said you've started a new business. And so, this is the wrong time to be trying to potentially look at finance, right? It's not a good time. Look, if you can get a job and you can be there and you'll be there for three days and you get your first place that you can borrow money, you start a business, you basically rule out lending for a number of years, right? Firstly, you know, most banks won't want to look at you, at you till you've had your ABM for two years. Some 18 months, but most two years. Is that regardless of how much money you make as a business? Like even if you're profitable? Yeah, because, it's, you know, you think about it like, you know, 95% of small businesses fail in the first two years, all that sort of the, the, the stats out there, right? That's what a bank's sort of thinking, right? And so what they really need is to have a couple of years of your ABN sticking around and ideally, you know, one to two years of your financials done. So sometimes you could have an ABN for two years, but not have two years of financials, right? And that would be okay. The problem is that they do want to lend on your financials rather than sort of future cash flow or what you're potentially earning this month, right? As a job, they might do that, you know, what you're earning. So it's, it's, it's massive discrimination, I would say, with new businesses versus people who are employed that could get made redundant tomorrow, right? You just got to be aware that there's this bias. So generally speaking, if you're thinking about starting a business, what you do want to do is get lending advice prior to starting a business, right? You want to make sure you've made these big decisions. And maybe it is, I delay the business six months because it means we want to upgrade our home first or we want to buy our first home or we want to build buffers, et cetera. So you, but if you've already started your business, what you really want to be doing is knocking down and try to make your financials look as good as they are uh, can be. I don't want them to look great because of tax benefits, et cetera. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, yeah. when you try to borrow money, the bank's going to look at your financials. And so, you know, generally with, with banks, you need to get two years ABN, you know, at least one year good financials. Now, the banks have started to bend policy here. This policy is always changing, right? So if you pay yourself a salary and we can prove the business isn't running a big loss and it's not in a lot of debt, some banks will just use your salary as enough evidence if you've been paying it to your bank account for the last six months as income. And so it's been that little innovation around bank lending, around self-employed. But ultimately, it's not good. Look, there are things like low-doc loans. But ultimately, if you start fishing in this pond, you've got to be really careful because you can get stuck in that pond and that could be higher interest rates. It could be you know, lots of other things that you wouldn't get if you just went down the normal stream. Chris, correct me if I'm wrong here, Billy may have a partner in this situation too, which may be a different conversation or like it's similar conversation, but maybe there's a little bit of, maybe there's a little bit of light at the end of one tunnel that maybe is interesting. Yeah, there are things where they can say, look, you know, one party is running a business, we're not going to use their income, that they don't need that income to live, right? They can cover their own expenses and one party is going to go and borrow the money. Problem is that that one party can only borrow so much based on one income and that may not be enough because that income might not be enough to borrow a significant amount that you need and you may need joint incomes. And the reality is 
when you're buying into you know the property market, it's tough on one income. So most of the time you do need two. And so it's just putting a bit of a plan in place. Look, we've had clients who for short term have decided, look, you know what, I'm going back into contracting. I'm going back into full-time employment. And who knows what's going to happen in the future? The bank doesn't rely on that. It just says, what are you doing today? And you may decide, you know, six, four months, go back and start a business. But at that point in time, you could get a loan and things like that. So it is a hard thing because a lot of people do want to start businesses, which is great. I've been there as well. And it's just knowing how what's the impact on lending and can you get around those through maybe doing it before or delaying something. You're hearing from two business owners on the podcast today. And uh, in fact, all of us are business owners, Pete, Amy as well. And so we know how tough it can be and how there are certain benefits to running your business, but there are definitely some pitfalls. I was imagining a couple of tradies that I know when you're talking about those, uh, maybe let's say cash payments that they might receive yes. <laughs> prior to going for a loan. And they think, oh, I earn $120,000. Well, the bank sees 60. So it's important to make sure that your financials as a business are squeaky clean as well, because you do think forward, you do want to maximize your opportunity to apply for a loan. So the next one comes from sisters doing it for themselves. Gotta love this, these creative names. I am a single female in my early 40s. Getting on the property ladder while wanting to live near the city makes it seem unachievable. My brother and his wife have suggested we buy an investment property together with the intention that I will live in it. I'm wary of what could go wrong and whether I can afford it. What are the things I'd need to consider and who is the right type of person to get advice from? I don't want to do anything that would damage my family relationships, but I don't want to keep flat sharing either. Chris, this is a very common question. Families think, we'll just buy a house together. Or friends, why don't we go in together? I've heard this many times. And I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, so it's not a cut and dry. It's not black and white. You should never do it or you know, you should always do it, right? It's a real case-by-case question, which is what most questions are, to be honest. But we've had clients, we've got one at the moment, that are um, two sisters. They've both got their own places and they're buying an investment property together. We've got another client at the moment who's trying to get their brother or sister to sell a property. It's massively in their interest, but their brother and sister don't want to sell it. I'm not exactly sure which one it is, a sister or brother. And we've seen it work really well. And so it's not to say that it can't work, but you just need to be really aware of you are on different life plans, right? I haven't got the name. So the sister's doing it themselves, right? You, you're the person buying it who's single, right? Um, I guess your situation can change. Right. So you could buy this and then all of a sudden you do have a partner and then all of a sudden that place that you bought is not what you want anymore. Then you want to sell it. And all of a sudden your brother and sister go, actually, you know what? I don't want you to sell it. Look, it hasn't made much money. And vice versa, there could be a divorce on that side. Not say there could be, they might want to do something else. They might want to upgrade their home on the investment. Exactly. They, there's lots of things that, that you're on different timelines. And this is why it's hard is you're making long-term decisions with different lifestyle goals and changing lifestyle needs. Now, if, for example, sometimes it's it's a bit easy with parents. For example, like parents have got their forever home. They're, they're going to live there forever and they want to buy something with the kids. And we've definitely seen that. So I guess when you, the issue you might have here is that let's say you go 50-50. You can cover your 50% of the mortgage, right? But then also your brother or sister, I can't remember who it is, but they will also want an investment return on their 50%. So they might have to cover a mortgage there and say, who's going to pay that rent? Are you going to get a flat share in or are you going to have to cover that as well? And you might become really cash tied, you know, in this situation because 
they're not just going to want to let you live in that investment property for free, right? They're going to have to cover their mortgage. And so I just got to be careful. Like if they're using cash, it's a little bit different. Like maybe they're going, well, I don't need to cover a mortgage. So I'm just happy to get the capital growth or, but it definitely needs to be thought through. And a plan B needs to be sort of really thought through. Look, if something does happen, I really need to be able to live here for a certain time frame, or, you know, and you need to commit to some things yourself and say, look, even if I do get a big partner, uh, a, big, a new partner, then I will potentially consider the right time to sell for you. I won't just rush to sell. I have to have conversations. And, you know, you have to really think, well, should we just do this ourselves rather than do it together? But there is potentially benefits to do it together because your borrowing capacity is higher, may mean you can get a better asset, but it might not be something you do forever. It might only be for a short time runway. I've seen this go wrong in the past and we get asked questions about this. My feedback has always been that folks should consider having something in writing. Yeah. When they do this. So even if it's just a one piece of paper that you're all signed to say, if one of us want to sell, this is what happens, or this is how we're going to split the financials and who meets this repayment at what time, because it does get complicated quickly. Two different timelines, relationship on one side, and maybe another relationship on the other side in the future. That's four different priorities. So just make sure you've, it's very clear at the outset because if your family preservation is most important, the relationships, if there's kind of like this single source of truth, this is what we all agreed on. It also helps you settle any disputes in the future as well. I've seen instances where other family members have had to come in and bail out other family members. And it just, if you're a family first person, just be very clear at the outset and don't kind of hold back in terms of your expectations. Because if you don't say the thing that you want to think you want to say that's in your interest, well, that could come back to bite. Yeah, absolutely. So in that scenario, you may say, look, if I do get a partner um, and we can afford to buy you out, then we will, that could be part of it, right? Exactly. I've got the ability to, you know, first write your refusal at a certain date and a certain market price, et cetera. So you just want to think about all options. The same as a guarantor loan, right? So if the parents are going to help you and they're going to help you get on the market, you really need to think, well, what can I do to protect them and protect our relationship? And so we would advise clients to sit down with their parents Talk about what their repayments are going to be and how they're going to get rid of that guarantor over what time frame, you know, what's physically they're going to do around saving, additional saving and having all that discussed rather than just saying, hey, thanks parents for the guarantor and no clarity because they want to know that and they just want to make sure that they want to help you, but they also want to know that you've got a plan to take action. And, and when you go through on that, then everyone's happy, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's a really good thing to do. And they might, uh, your parents might want to retire or do other things or help another sibling out with their guarantor. So keep that in mind too. Okay. So we've got two more questions left here, Chris. The next one comes from Rich who says, my partner and I are about to move into a new home in a tourist hotspot along the Great Ocean Road, which is a fantastic part along Melbourne's coast. We were thinking, of Victoria's coast, as I say, we were thinking we could Airbnb the property occasionally to help with mortgage repayments, such as during Easter or Christmas. However, we've recently discovered that there are some tax implications to renting out your home when it comes time to sell it. Can you please discuss the pros and cons of Airbnb your primary place of residence and how you might decide if the short-term income from renting it outweighs the long-term shortfalls in capital gains tax? I love this question. The reason I love it is they've already found their answer in some way by figuring out there's a tax consequence. A lot of people don't. I was catching up with a mate just up on the beaches a couple of weeks ago. He goes, oh, yeah, they went back to the UK. They rented it out. And I was like, oh, you do know that that's the impact on your capital gains tax. It's like, what? What do you mean? Because a lot of people don't know that. They may know that they've got to pay tax on the income. They can maybe offset some of their mortgage interest, et cetera. 
So I think the numbers will do the talking here. They did say they want to rent out the peak periods, like Easter, Christmas. That to me sounds a good start, right? Like you want to be able to rent it out for a decent income return, A, to make it worthwhile. Just getting a couple hundred bucks a night here and there, like is it really worth the capital? And capital gains tax and capital growth is really hard to know. And so you've just got to be get very clear tax advice, and this is tax advice, and role play different scenarios. If I did rent it out and got X, Y, Z for this period, how would it affect my income tax? How would it affect my future capital gains tax? A different if it didn't grow, if it grew a lot, etc. So just do the numbers on it. But that is one of the biggest things that I see. Now there is a benefit for renting it out because ultimately there's a short term cash flow benefit, right? And there's a potential long-term cost with future capital gains tax on that period that you rented it out instead of it being tax-free. And that short-term cash flow benefit might be important for you to fund the holiday somewhere else or to just pay the mortgage or you might feel under the weather. And so you, I want to say, I'm not ever going to, I don't want to pay this tax one day in the future and be under debt stress, et cetera. Something that we'll do as a family, right? So we'll go away in, in January, even though there's a potential capital gains tax thing. The rent we can get it in that January period where we live is astronomical and it's a massive cash flow benefit. Why not why not consider it? But also you got to just really look at the Airbnb cost, the cleaning, the potential damage, the hassle. There's also a lifestyle potential impact. Someone's staying in your home, not everyone's happy with that, right? So weigh it all up, right? It's not as cut and dry as money, cash cow, when it's your home and you're trying to do Airbnb. Look, I think this is a bit of a, a gap in Australian tax policy. I think if someone's doing it within, a, you know, I think it's creating more houses on Airbnb that are available, which is going to create more listings, which is great for our economy. And I think we should also be able to rent rooms out in our house without impacting our capital gains tax, which you can't do because we've got a rental crisis. And I think this is one of the things that a rental crisis should lead to tax policy change around people better utilising their properties and not having these big tax implications, but that's my um, nirvana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll keep petitioning the government for yeah, this. exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, Chris, just two real quick things. One is I think you mentioned in our free course on the RASC website that there may be, maybe this was a previous podcast we talked about, that there may be some sort of window once you get X number of years into your primary residence. So, for example, if you held that, primary residence for seven years or something like this? Oh, yep. I might take over um, because I think you're butchering it. (laughs) So, you know, this isn't tax advice, right? But it's on the ATO website, so you can check it out. The principal place of residence that you don't pay capital gains tax on, right? It's one of the biggest things that support property prices in Australia is people knowing that it's growing tax-free. They've got this big tax bill. I'm just going to keep living here because it's a great asset, right? But what the, the ATO policy says is that if you do move into when you first buy it, right, you're not renting it out for a year or six months or three months, the place has to, you can't rent it out when you first buy it. So you have to live in it. So that becomes your principal place of residence. Now, if you live in it for a period, the ATO doesn't say how long. The reality is if it's anything really under six to 12 months, I would say it looks like tax avoidance, right? And that's not great for the ATO. If you live in it for a period, right, and then you decide to move out and turn it to an investment property and you haven't got it, you don't go and buy another home, then you could claim it as your principal place of residence for up to six years. That means you can grow tax-free for six years. You can still run the the mortgage costs as deductions and you still potentially negative gearing and all that sort of stuff as a normal investment property, but you're not going to pay capital gains tax on the growth of that in that six years. There are issues with this if you move overseas. 
become a um, foreign tax resident, which has changed recently in a couple of years ago, et cetera. So, but ultimately that's something that sometimes first home buyers should consider is, yeah, maybe I'm happy to live there for a period, but maybe I still want to be in the city. And so I'll buy my future home as an investment property, live down there for a period, and then come back and rent in the city and still have my future home growing tax free. And so that's a, a strategy here, which could work. And yeah, so speak to your accountant about that because it's um, obviously it's potential implications are quite significant. And just on that tax is you can sometimes think it's really basic, right? And you know the rules. When you've got a great accountant, they will slap you over the face and prove that you have missed something to do with policy. I go to my accountant all the time with the business and said, can I do X, Y, Z? No, 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 no. This is how the ATO is going to look at it. And sometimes I think, and the ATO is getting smarter than ever. You've got to look at chat GPT. Is the ATO more likely to use bigger and bigger data to mine that data to find out where there's issues with people evading the system or not paying the correct tax? And I would just be really careful with a she'll be right, mate, policy with tax. I think you're, you're asking for trouble. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the last question then. So the last question comes from Jack of Few Trades. Says, how can you balance a property's competing positive and negative attributes? For example, our particular example is weighing up whether to buy a good house within walking distance to the beach in a cool area with strong historical longer term growth and solid yield. Sounds like Nirvana, which is available at a fair price. But it is separated from a main arterial road by a council nature strip. So it gets quite a bit of road noise during peak times. It's a damn dilemma. It's a funny one, right? So this sounds a great a suburb, I would say. I think what I mean by that is a super desirable suburb, walking to the beach, blah, 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 right? It's a good suburb, but it's not a great property within that suburb. Now, the long-term capital growth of this property isn't as nice a ride as the nicer parts of the suburb, which a bit more of a flatter, you know, people on YouTube will be able to see it, a bit more of a slope curve. It's a great, it's still, and those better properties are probably growing at a longer term at a faster rate. These properties go on a bit of a bumpier ride. It's like a more of a roller coaster, right? When times there's huge desperation in the market, 2021, FOMO's rife, everyone's got to buy, got to buy. The poor properties in great suburbs, growth really catches up because people who want to buy the best properties just out of desperation buy the ones on the busy roads. They look past the problems. You go to a back market like 2022 though, people are much more choosy. They're not desperate, right? And they say, oh, yeah, great suburb, but I'm just going to keep waiting. I'm not going to buy on this busy road. So the, if you buy in a good suburb and it's, but it's not a great property, you just got to be careful on your timing. So a, when you buy it, you've got to know that you're potentially getting a good discount on what it would pay if you didn't have that issue. And then you also lose control of the sale. So this is the thing that people sometimes don't realize. When you buy an asset that's compromised, right, it, you have to sell it to get a good return in a good market. You can't just in three or four years' time say, I'm just going to sell it because if the market's not great at that point in time, a good property in a great suburb will still sell well in down markets. You can see in 2021, 2022, 2023, good properties are still selling because no one's selling them. And so, but the poor properties sit on the market, they go stale, they get low ball offers, et cetera. And so that's the problem with this situation is you could, it's when you buy it, but you also lose control of the sale. It's not say you can't make money. Some things are real deal breakers. Like if that is a seriously busy road and it's really unsafe for families or something like that, and or it's dark and it's really south-facing and it's massive privacy issues, a weird floor plan or a weird block, personally, I would just say, even if you're buying it in a great market, 
the time you have to sell that is the peak of a best market. When there's complete desperation to get a really good price, I just think you're going to buy an underperforming asset. And I would actually go further away, make more compromise and get a better asset. Because also the properties that are the most compromised are actually the worst prices to live in. That's the reason why it's a compromise, right? It's And so you'd also get a potential better lifestyle living in a better property and better investment turn if you just made a small compromise, maybe a bit further away or whatever it might be. Yeah, a bit further away from the beach perhaps might be a better outcome. I can picture the kind of bouncing up and down of those lower quality properties in in good areas, but lower quality makes a lot of sense. We've covered a lot of ground today, Chris. If folks want to get in contact with Chris, head to the show notes. There's a, a link there that says uh, something like mortgage broking. But uh, Chris from Blask, you can also visit the website if you are so inclined. You can find out more about what I do at Rask by also heading to the show notes. There's all the links there. And importantly, the one link in there that we really want you to click is the link that says ask a question because we do want to get your questions. We could do these Q&As every single week. We just need the questions. We've had a lot flying in lately, which is great. And it could be Chris and I, it could be Chris and Pete, it could be Pete and Amy, whoever, it could be anyone. It's luck of the draw for you, depending on who you get, but we do love your questions, so please send them in. Mate, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. So much fun, Owen. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.